It's going to happen this morning. I'm in a very strange mood. Um, I might just combust as I contemplate John 17. Um, I feel a little emotional, so I'm just, I'm just giving you some fair warning here. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know if I can be accountable for what might happen. Um, I'm quite moved by the last few weeks of the text and uh, all that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have done to secure my salvation, your salvation, every true believer's salvation. But as I contemplated <clears throat> John 17 over the last few weeks, a wonderful memory flooded back into my mind. Uh, it was the year 2000. It would be the last time I would preach at the church I grew up in. How did I know it would be the last time? Because I, just, I felt led of God to preach Ephesians 1. This was a text that was never preached in my home church. That text and many other churches, again, the church that I grew up in. There were probably 300 people there, you know, Bible Belt and all that, and it was a pretty decent-sized church. Um, I just preached Ephesians 1. I didn't quote anybody. I quoted no theologians. You know, I, on purpose, I decided not to quote any man. I would just, you know, preach the text. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, and I noticed people begin to get up and walk out. I don't know if you've ever done that in a church. Um, I don't think I've ever ha had it happen since. <clears throat> but uh, I had a friend in the congregation. I asked him, I said, um, what, about 30 people left? He goes, yeah, 30 groups of people left. Um, it was a sad situation, really. As we all know, many who claim to be Christians simply do not like what God says about how he saves his people. They don't like it. They simply don't like it. And so they'll find some, you know, some theologian somewhere who will explain it away for them. And diminish all that God says he does. And I, and I know when we give our testimony, it's, it's pretty much about what I did, which I, I rebuked you last week. Don't ever give your testimony and make it about you. It is, it is not about you. It is about what God has done in your life. People, you, you, you get to some of these big sovereignty of God texts and people simply will not hear it. They will not accept it. They'll get up and walk out before they'll let you exposit a text like Ephesians chapter 1. I had a, have a good friend in the States. His church just split this last year over this issue simply because he insisted on preaching the text. And about half the people left. And... Uh, you know, what do you say in a situation like that? Uh, you say, the truth divides. This is what you say. The truth always offends. It always divides. And if a church divides over truth, then praise God, right? Praise God. If they divide over truth, now if they divide over the color of the carpet, there's a problem there. But if they divide over truth, if there are some people who simply will not hear what God has clearly said in his word, let them go. They went out from us because they were never of us. Okay? This is, uh, again, that's a quote from 1 John. It's true that many who claim to be Christians, they simply don't like that God says he elects his people. They don't like it. 
They will not tolerate it. It offends their pride and their self-righteousness. As one theologian said, I heard this many years ago and I've always loved it. Many people who profess to be Christians, once they get actually around to reading their Bibles, they discover they don't like the God of the Bible at all. They don't like the God who's holy. They don't like the God who talks about hell. They don't like about the God who is wrathful. They don't like, they don't like the God <clears throat> who talks about predestination and election. They, don't, they won't have this God. They won't have him. And I won't sit under any preacher who will unapologetically proclaim that God. I saw a great quote by my, one of my favorite preachers in the States, John MacArthur, this last week. <laughs> and I'll just share it with you. He says, if the truth offends, let it offend. This is my philosophy. <laughs> you know, if none of you come back next week, I can stand before God with a clean conscience. I don't preach for you. I preach for him. I have an audience of one. It's not whether you like it. It's whether I'm faithful. MacArthur continuing, if the truth offends, let it offend. People have been living their whole lives in offense to God. I love this. Let them be offended for a while. Do you realize God has been offended at most of what you do, think, and say? Particularly before you were converted. But even as a converted man or woman, we know we still sin. This is offensive to a holy God, right? I just love what he says. If it offends, let it offend. We don't dumb it down. We don't try to, you know, well, I'll, I'll not go off on that excursus. We'll try to get back to the notes. Why was it a wonderful memory for me? You would say, you might be thinking, Jim, why was that a good memory for you? Because God was glorified through the preaching of his word. Because religious pretense was exploded. And because some in the congregation came to me after it was over and they thanked me and they began to inquire. And I, I counseled a number of them to help them come to some level of comfort with a truth they've never been exposed to in this, shall we say, nominal church. So some of you have heard me talk about this before. Um, you know, I hear this on occasion as a pastor, and I'm sure some of you have heard it as well. A new Christian, and, and uh, maybe a Christian who's also really growing in the Lord, and they'll, they'll, they'll say something to me like, my friends think I'm weird. My wife thinks I'm weird. My kids think I'm weird. My colleagues think I'm weird. And you know how I respond, right? I, I've said this to you many times. You know how I respond. Yay, you are. You're supposed to be. You know, you go to the King James Version. I think it's six times in the King James Version. God says, who knows? God says you are what? What are you? Peculiar. peculiar. You're peculiar. You're supposed to be weird. The world is supposed to look at you and goes, what's wrong with that guy? Why does he act like that? Why does he refuse to go with us? You're supposed to be weird. You're an exile. You're an alien. You're strangers upon the earth. You are weird in the very best way. I looked up the word peculiar, and it, it means to be set apart, to belong distinctively to one person. That's what John 17 is about. 
You're peculiar in the very best way, right? From eternity past, right? God, the Father has given you to the Son. Beloved, we're supposed to be peculiar. Uh, yeah, there's something wrong if people don't recognize the fact that we are not of this world. It's the biblical meaning of, of the word here. We are God's own people, God's own possession, God's own special people. We belong to God. And we're supposed to look like we belong to God. We're supposed to talk like we belong to God. And we're supposed to surf the internet like I belong to God. We are weird because we are God's. It's what we've been seeing in John 17, right? <laughs> we are distinctively His. We are His exclusive possession. Some of us, before we started John 17, had no idea to what degree we belong to God. From an eternity past, we belong to God. If we were confused about that, John 17 has cleared it up. And I'm going to say this to you again. I've said it all three times. Uh, in this chapter, God says it six times that we are a love gift from the Father to the Son. In John 17 alone, he says it six times that the Father has given the believer to the Son. Now, okay, in this one prayer, Jesus keeps saying this. I think it matters, and I think we're supposed to understand it. Well, I know for sure that we are supposed to understand it. We are love gift from the Father to the Son. And again, in, in the whole Gospel of John, it's, it's repeated ten times. If you want the verses, email me. I'll send you my notes. So I wanted to pick up here again at verse 6 just for context. We're going to jump back to verse 6 just for context. Um, and those of you who didn't hear the first two sermons, I, I encourage you, just go out on the podcast site and download them. And those of you who are not well versed in uh, predestination election, go, uh, go to the podcast site, go to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, the first four sermons, where there's a detailed exposition of that doctrine. Verse 6, I manifested your name, this is Jesus praying to the Father, to the men whom you <clears throat> gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So, again, Jesus is saying that we belong to the Father, but now we have been given to the Son. We are a peculiar people. This is not true of anyone else. This is true of the genuine believer. And so we must let the Bible interpret the Bible. This is what I always say to you. We've been saying this the last three or four weeks. The Bible always interprets the Bible. We have to say yes. We have to say yes to every text, even the text that our uh, church we grew up in never taught us. Right? We have to say yes. How do we say yes to the high sovereignty of God and say yes to the responsibility of man? It's simple. God said it. I accept it. Yes, I feel the tension. You're supposed to feel the tension. Of course there's tension. Finite mind is interacting with infinite word. 
If there's not tension, if you've got God in your box and you can explain him to the nth degree, he's not God. You've got some pseudo-Christ in your head. And I'm going to go back to Ephesians 1. Just This is a text I preached where I cleaned out the church. Um, and I've read this to you already, but I'm going to read it to you again. Ephesians 1. Um, this is what Jesus is talking about. Those that the Father has given him. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What are you going to do with that text if you hate this doctrine? <laughs> well, you're going to have to explain it away, or you're going to have to never read it again. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons. What are you going to do with that text if you hate this doctrine? Through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Why, why has God done this? It's right there in verse 6. To the praise of his glory, of his grace. Listen, I've, I've been warning you. Don't touch God's glory in salvation. And if you do, I'll pray for your soul. God says, I saved my people. And God help you or anyone else who claims to be a Christian and runs and or, what's the word, diminishes or ignores this doctrine. This is to the praise of the glory of the grace of God. You are a trophy of the grace of God if you're a Christian this morning. It's all about the grace of God. It has almost nothing to do with you. Except that, yes, you received that grace, that, that, that gift of repentance and faith, and you exercised it. You know, the modern church, we see the cross as God making much of us. Can I tell you again, it ain't about God making much of you and me. It's about God being glorified and his grace being glorified. That's what it's really about. And this is why true believers will worship God endlessly. Right? With every fiber of their being. Because he saved me. I didn't want him. I thought he was a joke. Can I just be honest? I grew up in that church. I thought God was a chump. I thought you could play him for a fool. Right? This is how it is in many, in many churches. You can play God for a chump. I can just pray that prayer anytime I want. Yeah, I'll sin tonight, but you know, I'll just repent. I'll repent at church on Sunday. And you know, if I need to get saved, I'll pray that prayer. I'll get into baptistry. It'll all be good. Sadly, I've been doing this for a long time. A thousand people have come through here. This is the ambiance of much of what I've seen and heard. This presumption on God. That God owes me something. And we talked a lot about it in here. God doesn't owe you one thing. Except what flows from his character. And that's justice. That's all God owes you. He doesn't owe you a savior. Now if you have a savior this morning. <laughs> that's by the grace of God. He doesn't owe you a savior. Um, I got to read you a quick quote from Piper's book. Providence. He says this about. Christians not understanding the, the vastness of the salvation God has provided. 
He says it's a great tragedy that millions of Christians do not know this is true about them, that God sovereignly saved you. He continues, they have been taught a salvation with themselves as the decisive cause at the point of conversion. This view of their own decisive power obscures the glory of what God has actually done for them. It strips them of the stunned thankfulness for the, for the gift of faith. It dulls the intensity of their amazement that they were raised from the dead. You were Lazarus in the tomb. If you understand biblical soteriology, which is how man is saved, you were dead in, in you were with Lazarus in the tomb. You were dead. And Jesus called you out. Beloved, we need to learn how to tremble and be humble and accept the word of God. Piper continues. And takes away the wonder to ignore this doctrine. It takes away the wonder that their perseverance is owing to the omnipotent moment by moment keeping of God. I love what Piper says. He says, we need the facts established, not the mystery fathom. So what I try to do for you is establish the facts from the Bible, right? I'm trying to establish the facts. I'm not going to fathom the mystery because I can't. The Apostle Paul does it in Romans 9. He just says, finally, who do you think you are questioning God's ways? Who do you think you are? This is where the Apostle Paul Lands. Let's look briefly at verse 9. <clears throat> I just want to hit this point one more time. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. We talked about this, but I just wanted to hit it again. Jesus is praying for the Ephesians 1 guys, the Romans 9 guys, the Romans 8 guys, the John 6 guys, the 1 Peter 1 guys. That's who he's praying for. He doesn't pray for the world. We talked a little bit about that last week. Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save forever since he always lives to make intercession for us. Why are you still a Christian if you are? If you're a Christian, why are you still a Christian? He's interceding for you. That's why. That's why Judas fell and Peter came back. We talked about that last week. I won't go into that again. So the context, we know. John 16, 33, Jesus gives his farewell sermon. Without a break, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray that his men will hear it and through them that you and I will hear it. Verse 16. John 17. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. There it is. You don't belong here. You're supposed to be a stranger in exile. You're supposed to live like that. The aroma coming off your life is supposed to, you're supposed to smell like God, as my seminary professor used to say. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me <clears throat> into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. What is Jesus saying here? Well, sanctify is almost a synonym for peculiar, right? What does it mean? We are set apart. It's what sanctify means. We are set apart. 
Jesus is saying, keep them set, up, set apart. They're not of the world. We are set apart by God. I love how Eugene Peterson, Message Bible, don't recommend it, except for maybe background reading and amusement. It's not the Bible. It's a, it's a, it's a paraphrase of the Bible, right? But he has a great paraphrase of verse 16 here. He says, listen to what it says. He says, they are no more defined by the world. Don't you love it? They are defined by me, Christ says. My people are no longer defined by the world. They're defined by me. I love that. By who I am and what I say and my word. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? I think that's a great paraphrase. We're supposed to be peculiar. We have been set apart. for the work of God. As I often remind you, if you're not proactively in the Word, you can't live the Christian life. It's not that you won't, it's that you can't. If you're not feeding on who God is and what God has said, you will never live it out there. I, listen, I'm telling you from long experience. You will not live it out there. You will not. You'll fold every time it gets hot. You'll fold. You got to be looking at God, man. I, okay, I'll make a confession. I gotta, I'm a preacher, okay? I got to look at God every day or I'm going to end up in a ditch. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm closing in on 67 and I can just tell you as an old man, if I don't look at God today, I'll end up in a ditch. And if you don't know that about yourself yet, <clears throat> you got something to learn, something important to learn. Maybe you can learn it from the old guy. <laughs> if you're not, you call yourself a Christian, you're not in the Word, you're spiritual bait. Satan thinks you're a joke and he's laughing at you. Satan is laughing at you. You're bait. You are a joke. If you're not looking at God, and if you're not being changed by the Word, if you're not in awe and full of wonder and joy at all that God has done for you, you are spiritual bait. Jesus says, these guys are like me. Father, <clears throat> they've been set apart for your glory and for their joy. Some years ago, I heard a preacher say that Jesus is praying for the miracles that he's leaving in the world. I love that. And, and if you're a Christian this morning, you're a miracle he's, he's leaving in the world. Why? That you might sow the good seed, right? <clears throat> that you might sow the good seed. How are we miracles? <clears throat> We've been begotten of God, John 3. We're new creatures in Christ, 1 Corinthians 5. We have passed out of death and into life, John 5. We have passed out of darkness into the light, uh, 1 Peter 2. We are partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1. You're a walking miracle. This is one thing I've learned. Many Christians don't think highly enough of themselves in this sense. Some, some think way too highly of themselves in many other ways. You're a miracle, man. And if you'll hang on to that, <laughs> that gets you through some of the hard days. All that God has done for you and in you. We are His miracles and He's left here to do, we're left here to do what? Pursue health, wealth, and prosperity, of course. That's what every Christian needs. 
Why do you even come here? Just tune into Joel Osteen. He'll tell you about it. Of course, that's sarcasm. He's a false teacher. He's taking millions to hell. Why does he leave the miracles here? It's always Matthew 28, to make disciples. That's your pr premier function. Let's look at verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, here we go, but for those also who believe in me through their word, we're in this thing, man. You know, some people want to say, well, that, that verse 6 there is really about the, the 11. No, it's not just about the 11. We, we find out right here, it's not just about the 11. It's about everyone who believes through the 11. This verse clearly rebuts those who make that false argument that Jesus is simply praying for the 11, that every true believer in this room is caught up in this. And it ought to change the way you live when you roll out of bed in the morning. You know, if you're thinking deeply about this, I think you'll be affected just like I am. I trust that you would be. I want us to realize that what Jesus just told his 11 guys here, what did he just tell them? They will have fruitful ministries. And it's like Chidi brought up uh, this last uh, Bible study. We were talking about the parable of the sower, right? And we we're talking about, you know, all of these, these, the first three examples are false confessions of faith, right? They're false. There's no fruit. But in the last uh, example there, there is fruit. There's always fruit. For the true believer, there'll be fruit. Right? There'll be a love for God. There'll be repentance of sin. And there'll be someone witnessing to what God has done in their life. There'll always be this fruit. It'll be there. No such thing as a secret agent. Christian. Yeah, a few hours, Jesus is going to be nailed to a tree. And these guys, their world's about to blow up. But Jesus just told them, if they're listening carefully, they will have fruitful ministries. People will believe through their word, right? And this is why I preach. Not because I think I have any ability to convert you, but I know God can convert you. And I know God can keep you, you know, from your lifestyle of sin. I know he can. I can't do anything. Man, if it was up to me, I'd still be an accountant. But I know God can do it. And so I proclaim it. And if you read the great missionary biographies, you realize, right? They went, most of them, they went because they knew God would convert. They knew God's elect were out there and they knew they would come. They knew it. It's why they went. They didn't go in, their co in confidence of their own gifts and abilities. They went in confidence of what God meant to do. <laughs> How did Jesus say it? John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come. They will come. So what's wrong with you? Why aren't you witnessing? Why aren't you witnessing? Why aren't you sowing the good seed, right? God says they'll come. They will come. <laughs> yeah, most of the world's going to hate it, but some are going to come. It's pretty good news. Pretty good news. Verses 21 to 23. That they 
Okay, these are big verses. This is why I went from the Heaven series into John 17. I want you to hear this. Not, not the only reason, but this is a big part of it. That they may be, they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That is, that's too big to speculate exactly what that means. So that the world may believe that you sent me the glory which you have given me. I have given to them. It's too big to speculate. I don't know what that means. I know it's awesome, but I don't know how to talk about it. That they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me. I don't know what that means. I, don't, I can't understand. It's too big. It's too wonderful. It's too beautiful. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. These are huge verses. These are huge verses. Jesus just prayed that there would be a kind of oneness between the believer and God, verse 21. He prayed that there would be a kind of tasting God's glory, verse 22. He prayed that we, we would be sharing an intra-Trinitarian love. <laughs> and you think it's just about going to church. Shame on us. If we think it's just about coming to church. Man, this stuff is supposed to drive us to our knees and to our face as we worship God. And he's not talking about ecumenical movements. He's not talking about denominationalism. He's talking about the church universal. We, every true believer, is one with God in a sense. There's a oneness there. We're not talking about, you know, well, let's dispense with this doctrine because it upsets some people so we can all come together. It's never that. All you got to do is read the words of Jesus. You realize Jesus never appealed to anybody on a fleshly basis. Never. He never appealed to the flesh. Ever. Ever. He never did that. He never did that. Ephesians 4, 4, the church universal is what? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Then Jesus prays this stunning petition, this kind of oneness with the Trinity that the true believer has. Again, I don't even know how to talk about this. Um, I heard one theologian say, meaning no sacrilege, um, no irreverence or no blasphemy, that it's almost like, it's not, but it's almost like, but it's not, but it's almost like we're the fourth member of the Trinity. And you're going to make it about church? Beloved, what I'm trying to exhort you to do is to be humbled by these truths and let these truths inform every day you wake up. You know, I hate this, this, this dumbed-down version of Christianity. Well, it's just so I, it'll help me make, so I can make it through the week. I hate, I hate this. This is not what Christianity is about. Yeah, it'll help you get through the week. But ultimately, an awesome God has saved you from hell. Ultimately, 
This is why true Christians can lose everything and worship God. Because if they lose every temporal thing, they haven't lost anything that matters. According to Scripture, we haven't lost one thing that matters. Ultimately. And listen, if God takes it, it's His. Let Him take it. Let Him take it. You need to, listen, whatever you're, you're holding like this, you got to let go. you got to let go. you got to open your hands. Let God have whatever it is you think you need to hang on to. I'm going to read those two quotes that I've been sharing with you for the last three or four weeks. This definition of love, this definition that this is how God has loved you. And you're going to whine and wring your hands and doubt him when something goes wrong? Really? Listen to, listen to this definition. It's Piper's. It's what we teach the kids. Biblical love is the overflow of joy that God has in himself, spilling out on unworthy people, you and me, to draw them into the greatest experience in the world. What's the greatest experience in the world? Health, wealth, and prosperity. No, namely, knowing, tasting, enjoying, praising, being swept up into the glory of God, which we saw happen in the book of Job, who lost everything. Then that other bridge... This is what I hear in these verses. Eternity is not static. There will be an ever-increasing union and conformity through all eternity between the redeemed and God. I love this. While the creator and creature are forever distinct, we always have to make that, that, that we have to note that. We're always distinct from the, the creator, but there will be an escalating and intensifying nearness and oneness with God moving upward with a given velocity through all eternity. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> These verses are just too beautiful. They're too life-altering. So what is our purpose here? Let me make a theological point. If you're a real Christian this morning, you have positional oneness with Jesus, right? It's a fact. You have positional oneness. It's a fact. But what God is praying for here is that you have a practical oneness, that it's being fleshed out in your life, right? There's a oneness that the, that the, that the bride has with the groom. There's a oneness. That's a theological fact. But what he's praying for is that you will flesh that out. And it'll be a practical fact before your kids and your neighbors and your friends and your, your relatives. Theoretical Christians are a dime a dozen. Um, Jesus is not praying for those who are merely religious. He's praying for those who will flesh out what this oneness is to look like. Again, it's not organizational, denominational, or ecumenical. That's not what he's talking about. So if we're going to be more than theoretical Christians, we have to take our cue from the Trinity. And what is the basis of the Trinity's oneness? Love and holiness, right? Love and holiness. Um, <clears throat> you remember what Jesus said in John 13, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another 
Uh, if you feel like it, no, that you love one another even as I've loved you. Now, that's a big, that's a big task. That's a huge task. You remember 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Jesus is calling us into love and holiness. This is the kind of oneness we're to have with the body. Love and holiness. We use our gifts in the body. We love each other. Verse 22, as you heard me read, <laughs> this is the glory that you have given me. I have given to them. I will not comment on it. It's too big. I don't even know how to begin to exposit that. But in what Jesus is saying, it's, it's obvious that true believers in some way will taste divine joy, verse 13, and divine glory, verse 22. If you lose everything this week, can you remember this? Can you weep with joy? God does everything for His glory and everything for the joy of His people. I don't think... Listen, if you, if you buy into John 17, you, you just simply can't live it small. You can't live it small. It can't be religion. It can't be that. It's one thing that I think the Lord is saying to us here. God's glory is manifested in the living. Listen, God's glory is manifested in the living, breathing, doing man named Jim Albright. God's glory. God means, this is what Jesus is praying about. God means that His glory be manifested in the living, breathing, word-doing Chandra or the living, breathing, word-doing Rohan, etc., 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 Everything else is two. This is one. Everything else is two. No, my kids are first. Wrong. Your kids are never first. And listen, I, you know, John Piper talks about this all the time. The deification of the family is a heresy in the Christian church. Yes, we love our kids. They're a great gift from God, but they are not first. Our spouse is not first. God is first. And when I love God first, I know how to love my spouse and I know how to love my kids. If I don't love God first, it's all a charade. I don't know how to do it. I can't even begin to love my kids the way God wants me to love my kids. I don't have any good thing to give them unless I'm utterly in love with God. We don't have one good thing to offer except trinkets on the way to hell. Yeah, we can buy them a lot of stuff. Jesus says the Father loves us even as He loves the Son. It blows up my head. It blows up my heart, right? <laughs> you know, you would think, well, He loves me in a, maybe a, a, some kind of second-tier way. No. And you want to make Christianity about health, wealth, and prosperity. Listen, I, I, I can't take it, man. I cannot take it. I can't take it. 
Verse 24. Father, I desire that that they also may, that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. I'm still doing okay. This is the sixth time in this prayer that Jesus has prayed this. He's talked about this. This gift from the Father to the Son of the redeemed. Jesus prays, Father, I want all these you have given to me, these love gifts, which I'll never lose one. Father, I want them to be with me forever. Listen, if you lose everything this week, just remember, forever is handled. I'm ne I never cease to be amazed in my own heart and in, in those that I encounter, I never cease to be amazed that I am not astonished enough at this and I don't allow this to inform the tragedy I'm going through right now. This is a real tragedy. I must weep. I must cry. But my forever is taken care of. I think it's because we don't you know, that's why we had the series on heaven. We don't think about heaven enough. We don't realize we're not, we're not, yeah, we're not here to stay. We're here, we're here to go. We're going to go there. And we're not, we're not thinking like this on a regular basis. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The fundamental core needs Jesus is talking about here. Intimacy, beauty, and adventure. This is what, this is how God made the human heart. For intimacy, Beauty and <clears throat> adventure. You see the intimacy here, right? We're to be one as the Godhead is one, verses 21 and 22. We are to be in some mysterious way in the Godhead. I won't comment. I don't know how to comment. There's something unbelievably awesome there, verse 21 and 23. And we are to be perfected in unity, verse 23. And in verse 24, we catch a glimpse of the beauty God has in store for us. Jesus prays that we will behold the glory of God. You look up these original uh, language words here. Uh, for the word glory means majesty, splendor, shining, grandeur, beauty, brightness, and, uh, magnificence, and wonder. Psalm 50 verse 2 says God shines in glorious radiance. God has bought us intimacy and he has bought us beauty. Right? I've got to read that... Uh, i got to read that uh, great quote from C.S. Lewis. I refer to it pretty often um, <clears throat> about beauty. Listen. C.S. <laughs> Lewis quantifies this human desire for beauty. Listen to what he says. We don't merely want to see it. We want something else that can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves. We want to bathe in it. We want to become part of it. That's what a true believer understands and knows. Awaits him in forever. Intimacy with, with an infinitely beautiful being. Right? And although the third one, adventure... It's not explicit in the text. It is altogether implicit 
in the text. Knowing God is the adventure. This is one thing I tried to make clear to you in, in, the, in the Heaven series, right? <laughs> He's the adventure. God's the adventure. Knowing God's the adventure. Loving God's the adventure. Beholding the glory of God is the adventure. He's the adventure. You know, again, I've been doing this a long time. A thousand people maybe have come through here. There are so few who have this, this, there are so few who have this deep vision of what God has purchased for us. You know, it's like, well, oh, okay, the church tells me I'm a sinner and I need, to, I need a Savior. Okay, okay, I'll do that. And that's as far as it goes. That's wrong. God means for you to treasure Him. Matthew 13, 44. God means for you to adore Him. God means for you to worship Him with every fiber of your being and every last thing you own, including your family. Why? Because God's a narcissist? No, because that's how He wired you. You need Him to be happy. You need Him to be full of joy. You must have God. He is the source of intimacy, beauty, and adventure that will satisfy your soul forever. Everything else is a lie. Everything else. And here's the amen, shall we say, the sum, uh, summary of the prayer and the long amen, verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Again, <clears throat> biblical Christianity is ra radically personal. That's what he's talking about. There's a knowing intimacy between the Father and the Son and there's a knowing intimacy between God and, and His people. It's always John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you. And this is the ultimate fact of the universe. There's a personal God. You know, you listen to the atheists. I like to go listen to these guys on YouTube sometimes. You know, the Richard Dawkins types and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. You listen to these guys. They're smart guys, right? They're articulate. And they hate that there's a personal God that they have to give an account to. And so they put it out of their minds. And we know Romans 1, they're just suppressing the truth. They know the truth. They're just suppressing it. You know, man is without excuse. You know he's there. I know he's there. Everybody knows he's there. Right? <laughs> and they hate it that they're accountable to a personal God. I am who I am. What? Let me get it right. Two personal pronouns and a relative pronoun in his name. He's a personal God. And if you don't know him personally, you don't know him. Facts, knowing facts, that's not what he's interested in. Okay, I'm, I'm done. I didn't do too bad. I mean, I'm pretty jazzed this morning, and, and my apologies to you. Um, I'm pretty emotional. I don't know why. You know, it's just when you're a preacher, sometimes you, just, it, you, don't, know, you don't understand it. Um, I don't presume to understand it. Let me close with this. I saw an article recently about declining church membership in the states. Why are they, why is church membership declining? It's boring.
church attendance. It's boring. I guess they've never preached through John 17. If you're bored through John 17, may I say you don't belong in the church. Get out. Just get out. It's like the church I grew up in. They liked, man, they loved their church. They loved doing their religion. And they loved being seen as, as righteous. They're good people. They dressed up. They wore ties. And they came to church on Sunday. And some of them, he put money in the offering plate. I know God must really like me. This is so alien to biblical Christianity, right? That we trust in this stuff. It's just completely alien to biblical Christianity. So the true believer, we're not bored. We're in awe. We know we're peculiar and we love it. <laughs> we are a love gift from the Father to the Son, adopted before the foundation of the world. Our inheritance is God. Intra-Trinitarian joy, intra-Trinitarian intimacy, intra-Trinitarian glory, and intra-Trinitarian love. That's our inheritance. A bored Christian is just an unconverted person. You can't be converted. You can't know God and be bored. It's impossible. Am I saying we never have struggles, we never have hard seasons? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you fight through it and you can see through it. You know, it's like, it's like the unbeliever. All they, can, all they can look at is the hard thing. That's all they can do is look at the trial. They look at the trial, they look at the trial, they obsess about the trial. It's awful, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. The Christian looks through it, right? The Christian looks through it. We look through the trial to the glory of God in it, whatever that is. Whatever that is, so... Just to summarize John 17, Jesus says, I pray, Father, you keep them in your name, that they may have my joy made full in them. I pray that they may be sanctified in the truth. I pray, Father, that they may also be in us and that the glory which you have given me, I give to them. These things are... That the world may know, Father, that you loved them even as you loved me. And Father, I desire that those you have given me will be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. So, can I lovingly dare you to live that small? I dare you to say you believe it. I dare you to say you believe it. And go live it small in the world. I dare you. This is what happens when you're a preacher and you sit behind your desk and you look at these things and you realize you have miles to go. You have not honored God as you should. And so what I'm doing, you know, I'm challenging you because I've been challenged, okay? The preacher is always preaching to himself. And if you don't know that, there's the clue. You know, I mean, a, a, an honest preacher is always preaching to himself, principally. So I'm challenging you. I dare you to live that small. Let's pray together.